Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. This is part two of my epic interview with Dr. Ed Epperly, author of Fiend Incarnate, Velisca Axe Murders of 1912. In this episode, the colorful and immoral Burns Agency detective, James Wilkerson, makes it his mission to persecute and prosecute F.F. Jones, Joe Moore's business adversary for the murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger girls on either the late evening of June 9th or the early morning of June 10th. Let's pick up where we left off on the last interview. The crime has been committed. Various doctors have made their visits to the house. Away we go. So speaking of F.F. Jones, part of the reason he would become suspicious for many was that he was in a business war with Joe Moore. They were in an intense competition for customers, and they were enemies in essence. Yeah. Um, Let me give you – there were three pieces of of – three attitudes or uh, three elements of evidence against uh, F.F. Jones. Moore had been uh, his salesman and maybe his best salesman. And in 1907, he left his employee and opened a competing implement dealership hardware store right across the street. Secondly, he took the John Deere Plow Company franchise with him. They uh, they didn't make tractors in those days, but they did make plows and binders and reapers and farm implements. And they approached him quietly, more I'm talking about, and uh, said, if you will start a competing business, we'll give you a low interest loan that will allow you to do that. And we will take our franchise and uh, give it to you rather than F.F. F. Jones. And he did it. So there was strong business animosity between the two of them. 
they they wouldn't meet on the street. If if they're coming up the street, one of them, and they see the other one coming, one or the other would cross the street rather than walk by each other. So that and everyone in a little town knows that. Uh, the second reason was F. F. Jones was also a banker. He he owned um, a bank. Well, he was a stock owner in a bank and was a uh, vice president of the bank. And um, that's a uh, that's not a popular position in a rural community, particularly back in 1912. Money is tight. A farmer puts his crop in the ground in uh, uh, April and May. It doesn't produce any income until November or December. And so he's got to have money to live to carry him. Uh, until uh, the crop is in and harvested and sold. And so all farmers, unless they're very wealthy and, and very secure, are dependent on the bankers. And consequently, if the banker is tough, reluctant to support you, uh, people don't like you. And also people felt that F.F. F. Jones thought he was superior to nearly everyone in town, and he probably was. But uh, they didn't like that. So there was an, uh, just a general resentment of F.F. F. Jones. But the, the primary motivation, the reason people were convinced that he would do something as horrid as this, was his son had married a woman named Dona Bentley, who came to school as a school teacher, I don't know, maybe nine, maybe oh uh, nine, three or four years before the murder. And she was teaching country school, and she ended up marrying uh, Albert Jones, F.F.'s son. Albert was kind of a heavyset, easygoing, little pudgy. I don't think he liked to work too hard. I don't think he was too uh, sharp. Uh, It's kind of a dull character. For whatever reason, and I don't have an explanation, it's very strange behavior for 1912, uh, Dona Jones in the fall of 1911, uh, less than a year before the murder, was receiving telephone calls and visits from at least three men in the community, two of whom were married, one of whom was not, and they they were asking permission to come over, and she was saying such things as, sure, come over, he's not here. And uh, that affair, whatever it consisted of, uh, was known by everybody because Dona and uh, Joe Moore uh, arranged their meetings uh, over the telephone. And the central girls who operated the switchboards could listen in, and they did listen in, and they did talk to friends. Every one of them had a friend who said, oh, I'll never, I won't tell anyone, you know that. And they always had one other friend who they felt... I can tell you because you won't tell anyone. And in a few hours, everyone in town knew there had been a meeting at uh, her house. That was completely out of the realm of proper moral behavior in 1912. And so she would have been soundly condemned had she not been the wife of the scone of a very wealthy person in town who you could whisper about, but you didn't want to get in an argument with. So that was that was really the case against him. F.F. Uh, F. Jones was 
on the main street. They were building a bank. Uh, he is, his bank had burned down during the winter. Uh, and so this, he was kind of surveying the job to see how things were coming. And the word got there that the Joe Moore family had been murdered. And he and um, I think a man named Ralph Means and another man who I don't know, the three of them uh, left to go to the uh, scene, to the Moore house. And um, on the way, that took them by um, George Bloodgood's um, blacksmith shop. Now, George Bloodgood had just sold it about a month before. but So a man named Heckmeister was the current blacksmith. But it looked like they were in transition because um, George was there inside the shop. And Ernest Peckham, the son, came in, the son of the woman who first detected problems, Mary, he came in and told them about the murder, and George uh, said that just as he heard that, he was standing in the doorway, and here came F.F. Jones and these two other men, and he said uh, Jones was walking fast, his face was red, his head was down, and I thought to myself, oh man, you know something about this. So that within that first 15 minutes, the people in town were talking about Jones's involvement. And that continued for the next two years, but it led nowhere because the townspeople did, they had their suspicions, but they had no idea of how it would have taken place. There was nothing in the paper about this, nothing in the record. Then in the spring of 1914, two years after the murder, there was an ad run in the uh, Villisca Review in which it, it said that um, James N. Wilkerson, a Texas land agent, had come to town and opened an office, and he was recruiting farmers to go to South Texas, as he put it, so that the best farmers in the world could buy the best land in the world. A bit of flattery there. And uh, he spent about a month posing as a Texas land agent. And then one night he came to uh, Ross Moore's drugstore back in the alley, knocked on the back door, screen door. And Ross came and he, he said he wanted to explain that he was not a land agent. He was an operative for the Burns Detective Agency. And they'd been hired by the state of Iowa to reopen the investigation of the murder. And he had been working incognito for a month posing as a land agent because he would ask about the murder and people would talk about it and not realize that he was gathering information. And now he had enough information to prove that F.F. F. Jones was behind the, the murder and the man he had hired was a man named, uh, well, I better hold off on that, uh, Mansfield uh, I don't think he had identified yet, but he was confident that F.F. Jones had uh, paid for the murder. Now, Wilkerson himself was a a good-looking, tall, uh, gregarious type of of intelligent man. Uh, He uh, uh, was, um, oh, kind of a a laid-back, confident guy. He then spent the next two years, from 14 until 16, 
building the case. What, what I've said that he canonized the rumors. There were a hundred, a thousand rumors floating around the town. Uh, the county attorney said that uh, everyone had an opinion. They shared it. It got added to and passed on. He said we had a thousand rumors. And uh, what he did was he took the most extreme rumors and dismissed those. He then identified rumors that he could build into a coherent case. Uh, he found out in his judgment, or at least he presented, the idea that F.F. F. Jones hired a man named Blackie Mansfield. And uh, Mansfield was a packing house worker. He actually was a union organizer for the packing houses. He was what they called a boomer butcher. He would go into a packing house and organize, work there, and then as soon as management caught him, <laughs> they would fire him, and he would jump on a train and ride to another uh, town that had a packing plant and start the same process. He lived, had been born and raised in Blue Island, Illinois, which is a German suburb south of Chicago. And uh, in 1914, in the summer, uh, he had a wife and a daughter, an infant daughter, and his father and mother-in-law, living in Blue Island, were murdered by a, in an axe murder, Blue Island axe murder, in the summer. He was immediately in suspected. He had um, left, he had run away from his wife, actually, he had deserted. He didn't know she was pregnant when he did that, uh, and that uh, he had another, he had a girlfriend, actually, uh, Kate. She, uh, she and he uh, had a common-law marriage. I'm not, I have no record of them ever being married, but they lived together the rest of their lives. That made him a prime suspect from uh, Wilkerson's point of view. He was now working in a packing house in Kansas City. Uh, that would be Kansas City, Kansas, across the river from uh, Kansas City, Missouri. And um, in 1916, by that time, Wilkerson had uh, amassed a case against him. Uh, it really was based on the fact that his family had been murdered in a similar murder. And uh, the police force had investigated him, and he had been working in Milwaukee when the murder occurred, and they had a, a different suspect, a rumor who had been in rooming in this house for a while and then had left town but came back and was seen in the town the uh, night of the murder. And um, they um, couldn't find him. Kashmir was his first name. He um, showed up in 1915 when he turned himself in to the Buffalo, New York Police Department and uh, confessed the murder. He was brought back. He repudiated the confession, but was convicted, although he was so obviously uh, mentally ill that he was sent to a um, Illinois mental institution and lived out his life there. Um, Wilkerson um, located a group of 
secret witnesses, people who had overheard things. And uh, that's what his case was based on. Uh, he had no physical evidence, but he, he uh, had built a case around testimony that people who claimed to have heard this or that incriminating information. He, the grand jury that I mentioned in 1916 investigated Mansfield, and he could prove that he was not in Villisca at the time of the murder. He was working in Illinois. And uh, Wilkerson was wildly excited about that, saying that uh, uh, Jones had packed the jury, and uh, consequently it was not a fair evaluation. And he started on this public campaign. His first speech was out at Friar's Pasture, south of Villisca, and uh, he got up and harangued the crowd for two hours about the um, murder and how uh, Jones was escaping justice because of his political position and his money. And Mansfield was the was a cocaine addict addict who uh, was hired to do the murder. And uh, then he was sued for slander by Jones when he started saying these things publicly. That's the first time it got into the paper. The major thing he did, that was an election year, and Jones was running for state senate. He had already been in the state senate, but now he's running for re-election. And um, the Sunday before the Tuesday election in June, uh, a flyer was sent from Kansas City. It was anonymous. Everyone knew it was sent by Wilkerson, but uh, it had a um, mugshot of uh, Mansfield, and uh, that mugshot was a um, taken at Leavenworth because he had deserted the army in, I believe it was 1908. He originally joined the Navy when he was, um, I think he was only 15, and uh, lied about his age, I suppose, and uh, he deserted the Navy. He finally, he couldn't take it, and uh was arrested, but then they found out he was underage, and so he that was dismissed. He re-enlisted later in the army and deserted the army, and uh, in this desertion, he was now uh, over 18, and so he was prosecuted and convicted of desertion and sent to the federal military penitentiary, which is side-by-side with the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. That mugshot, uh, Wilkerson had gotten a copy of that, and he sent this to uh, probably a few dozen uh, people in the Montgomery County area, basically saying, do you want the man who put up the dirty money that hired this man to kill the people in Villisca to be your state senator? And of course, that caused a great uproar, and uh, the slander suit followed that. Slander suit was spectacular, really. Uh, took place in the fall of 1916. It, it was so uh, interesting because it became a trial of Jones for murder rather than Wilkerson for slander because they argued his defense lawyer, Mitchell, Ed Mitchell out of uh, Counts Bluffs, he argued that Wilkerson did say those things, did accuse him of the murder, did accuse him of hiring the murder, all of those things. 
But in doing so, he was stating the truth. That's where uh, Jones actually did hire him and did plan for the murder and so on. And uh, therefore, you can't slander with the truth. And so he wasn't guilty. It became a trial of Jones for murder rather than Wilkerson for slander. And uh, Jones' lawyers uh, quickly proved that he had said these things. And then Wilkerson Mitchell started his case. And what he did, he brought in a series of witnesses. First one was a woman from Marshalltown, Iowa, Vina Tompkins. In the fall of 19, well, it's August of 1911, one year before the murder, a little less, she was camping outside of town while her husband worked on, they were bricking the uh, 3rd Avenue in Villisca, which is the main street on the square, and um, he was a, a sometime brick mason, and so he was working with the process of, of putting down the bricks in the street. And so they camped out there for a couple of three weeks, a relatively short job. Uh, they only bricked a few blocks. And then while she was there, she testified that she had gone to pick up some kindling for the fire at an old abandoned slaughterhouse. And there is there was a slaughterhouse there that was abandoned. And uh, while she was there, she noticed there were three men gathered around talking, and she hid in a, a patch of willows and her, overheard them talking. She couldn't hear everything they said, but she heard them talk about money. She heard them talk about how it could be done, kind of vague statements like that. And uh, she identified one of them as F.F. F. Jones. Another one she identified as a man named Weems, who she knew as a notorious gambler uh, in the underworld to some extent. Uh, Wilkerson interpreted that, that they were looking for a murderer, and Weems could do it for the money they were talking about, and so on. She was brought to the trial. She was actually brought by Jones. He, He thought she was going to testify for him. When in reality, she came and told this story, which was explanation of how the scheme was was planned. The um, most significant witness was a woman named Alice Willard. And uh, Alice had a seamy reputation in town. She was divorced, living with her father, who was older and ill. And uh, she lived about a block from the murder house. And she testified that uh, on the night of the murder, she was uh, riding around with a traveling salesman that she knew, a man named Ed McCray, and they had a breakdown in the car. And so they were walking back to town, and she had seen three men in the in the morning that she didn't know, three strangers walk by her house, and... Uh, while they were walking by those willows, she saw these three men coming up the street past the murder house into the uh, back lot, and they hid in the willows, Ed McRae and Alice Willard, and just as they got in front of those willows, they, they walked across the lot and stopped quite close to them. Now, theoretically, they couldn't be seen because they were 
crouching in the uh, thicket. There was a plum thicket there and so on. But she, she again, claimed she couldn't hear everything that was said, but she did hear them say, get Joe first and the rest will be easy. And this was Wilkerson's research had found the, the murder, the final plotting, because the three men had been joined by Albert Jones. Originally, it was Albert Jones and um, Bert McCall, the pool hall owner. This was very damning testimony because he, uh, she claimed to have actually heard F.F. F. Jones saying this. Then uh, Ed Landers, who was the insurance salesman from Shenandoah, had been in town the night of the murder, and he claimed on Sunday night he and his wife were walking home from downtown. They had been uh, uh, working at a cafe downtown. He uh, his, his sister ran a cafe called the Postonian Cafe. And about 8, 8.15, probably 8.15, he was walking and he said he and his wife uh, all of a sudden realized they were catching up with a man who was walking in front of them. And they didn't recognize who he was at first, but they got quite close to him. And just as they got to the murder house, he turned and walked up the sidewalk to the murder house. And when he turned, he realized it was Albert Jones. And as he said, he walked right in. Wilkerson interpreted this, that Albert, who knew the house and lived in the same block, was only a few houses away. He um, was going into the house to place these three strangers that Alice Willard had seen in the closets of the house so that they could come out after the family got home and went to sleep and do the murder. Uh, Wilkerson maintained that only Mansfield swung the axe. Everyone else, were the other two were just, uh, I suppose, backup in case there was trouble. But uh, the three of them were placed in the house by Albert Jones while everyone in town was at church. Now, everyone was not at church, but many people were. Now, that too was damning testimony. It was interesting that his wife, who was walking with him, was not questioned. Uh, she later appeared before a grand jury, but she was never questioned in public. And then the fourth witness was a surprise witness that occurred, John Warren Knoll. Knoll was a photographer, young man, had come to town after the murder, and he is, was very heavily involved with Wilkerson's uh, activities. He became a, well, later he became a driver for Wilkerson. He would drive him around. He, he did some photography work for him. And he was a member of Wilkerson's inner circle of people who uh, were supportive of Wilkerson. And he appeared as a surprise witness at the very end of the trial. And, uh, he claimed that in the spring, in, in early June, or maybe even late May, before the election in 1917, that his house was right behind F.F. F. Jones's implement business. And they had a machinery shed back there. And he, his wife had heard talking there when he came home about 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. And so he went out. 
and went across the alley. And here inside the machine shed was F.F. Uh, Jones and Albert Jones and uh, Bert McCall and someone else he didn't recognize. And they were talking and they were, they basically rehashed Wilkerson's plan. I mean, they basically talked about uh, all of the witnesses. They talked about they, how can we take care of Alice Willard? Wouldn't the $1,000 look big to her? Could we uh, buy her off? Uh, things like that. It was kind of a repeat of the Wilkerson case. And he claimed that he had decided to tell Wilkerson this, and he did it over in the Johnson Hotel, which is right across the street from the, it's gone now, but it's right across the street from the courthouse. And uh, by the time he finished telling him, it was two in the morning, and he sat out in the, in the hallway and smoked, he said he smoked four cigars, and then he took a walk and went to breakfast. So he didn't sleep that night. The trial was going on. Well, the defense immediately argued that this was trumped up between these two members of the Wilkerson group, Wilkerson himself and, and Noel. And uh, they asked Noel, well, you know, you had a grand jury in the summer. Uh, you didn't present anything to them. No, he didn't. No one knew that you were going to testify at this trial. Uh, you you weren't part of the witness list or anything like that. No, that's true. I just decided to do that. Well, why did you change? And he said, well, I just thought it would be for the good of humanity if I told what I had heard here uh, last spring. We will be back momentarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. The jury ruled in favor of Wilkerson, and the community felt this pretty well proved that Wilkerson was right. The jury had been convinced that these uh, men had planned the murder and been hired by F.F. Uh, F. Jones, and so they expected there to be a grand jury that would indict Mansfield and Jones. The grand jury was called by Oscar Winstrom. He ran on the platform of convening a jury and solving the Velisca murder and uh, was elected. Uh, he then hired Wilkerson. Wilkerson had been fired uh, by the uh, Burns Agency because when he arrested Mansfield in Kansas City, Kansas, it wasn't considered a false arrest. It was considered he he had abused the the prisoner. He they stopped on a bridge over the over the Kaw River and a big high bridge, and uh, they had just picked up Mansfield and Wilkerson as a detective had gotten the arrest warrant, and they had a uh, inspector, a detective from the Kansas City, Kansas uh, Police Department and a driver, and uh, he hit Mansfield in the face in the back of the car, and then he, he had the driver stop the car, and he said, we're going to throw this son of a bitch off the bridge. There's no need of wasting time on a trial, and uh, threatened him like that. And then when they got him to the police station, he was held for three days, I guess, and uh, have pretty obviously been uh, uh, roughed up and uh, beaten and threatened. And so he sued the Burns Detective Agency for $5,000 after he had been uh, released by the grand jury in Villisca. And uh, it came to trial. It didn't last long. He came to trial about this time. And uh, the jury ruled in favor of Mansfield, and he got, I don't remember the exact figure, I believe it was 2400 and some dollars that uh, he was awarded, and the um, Burns Agency fired Wilkerson, but he was picked up by Montgomery County, Iowa. He was hired as the prime investigator for the uh, grand jury, so he was did a lot of footwork. Uh, that's what he was supposed to do. But it didn't work out the way he planned because the uh, grand jury uh, was going to meet in uh, March. But the state attorney general, who now was a man named Horace Havener, uh, he took over. He came down and took over the grand jury and became the director of the grand jury because of two factors. One, this was a very significant case in Iowa is watched by the newspapers. There were articles being written, particularly since the slander suit, which had, was only three months before and had generated a lot of publicity. And uh, the feeling was that Havner was running for governor and the idea of solving the case and winning the trial would uh, be a real feather in his cap. And so he also was worried about the fact that 
we had a prominent Republican politician who might be accused of uh, hiring the murder. And so there was some uh, party loyalty involved, I think. And they were worried about Oscar, who was the county attorney. He, he, he graduated University of Iowa Law School in 12. So he was five years out of law school. And they thought this was too significant a case to uh, be in the hands of a young county attorney. And so Havner took over the case, kept Oscar on the case, but he was just an assistant now. And then he brought in a hired gun, a hotshot lawyer from Storm Lake, Fred Favel. Fred was uh, well-known in Iowa, became a justice on the Iowa Supreme Court, and so they conducted the grand jury. Wilkerson started out, as he thought he, before this change, he thought he was going to be pretty much in charge of the grand jury, and he thought he definitely could control a young county attorney. And so um, he immediately got into trouble with Havner. Several things happened in uh, the month or so of preparation before the grand jury started uh, meeting. The, the first thing was he provided Havner with what he called the Wilkerson dope sheet, which was a 150-page document uh, that took all of the witnesses and said, these are the witnesses. This is what they're going to say. Uh, you, I've interviewed them all, and you should ask them in this order, that kind of information. And he provided that to Havner. Also, he got himself in trouble by breaking into the county attorney's office and uh, rifling through the files and getting caught at it by the county attorney. Uh, they didn't fire him, but it, it increased the uh, tension. Finally, the, uh, he got in verbal arguments with uh, Havner, and he, he was removed. He was fired. By this time, he had formed a group called the uh, Montgomery County Protective Association, which served as a, a conduit for money and publicity to prosecute Mansfield and Jones. Jones had collected a dossier of, I think he had 31 items of, uh, that he thought was incriminating uh, Wilkerson. And Wilkerson knew he had a dossier, he didn't know how much he had. And so along about, in about this time, about a month before the grand jury, he went up to Atlantic and he hired three rather colorful young men. The leader was Brick Boiler, uh, Ed Boiler. Uh, these guys are just out of their teens. And um, he, the second man was, uh, <laughs> oh. Um. Brick, squint, and red, right? Oh, uh, thank you. Brick, squint. I couldn't get the, <laughs> you know this better, you know this better than I do. Uh. <laughs> uh, brick, brick, squint, and red is right. Red Nave was really young, uh, 17, I think, and uh, he was uh, a foundling. He was dead poor. But anyway, uh, Wilkerson convinced Brick that it wasn't a crime to, to steal evidence, to to break in to get some kind of evidence, and so he he did. Uh, the three of them came down, 
and Wilkerson provided them with a car, and they provided them with a pistol. Although I'm not sure they had any bullets. I don't think they did, but they had a pistol. And uh, they were going to uh, go at night and break into F.F. Jones's store, go at the back office, and get this dossier that Wilkerson wanted. Well, by this time, Brick is starting to have self-doubts. He, he, he wonders if it isn't le- illegal to break into a store and steal documents. Uh, but he, he doesn't want to admit to his fellows that he's gotten cold feet. So he, uh, he opens a petcock on the uh, gas line, and the gas starts to dribble out of the car. And they take off, and they get about a mile west of Nottoway, which is about four miles from Villisca. They almost got to Villisca. And all of a sudden, the car runs out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> and... They walk back to Nottoway, and they have to wake up a druggist. They, they, the, the gas was being sold in a drugstore, I think. And they, they, they got a couple of gallons of gas and walked back and refilled the tank. And to, I, I assume that uh, Brick felt trapped now, but he turned off the pet cock, and they went, they went in. They crept up to the store, but when they... They got to the store. Inside the store, there were men waiting. You had Albert Jones and Marshall Horton and John Palmquist, who was an employee of F.F. Jones, because they had been tipped off by Mr. M. Mr. M was a man named Moore, no relation, who had wormed his way into Wilkerson's secret circle, inner circle. And he was actually a newspaper reporter, and he wrote positive articles supporting Wilkerson and was thought of as a confidant, but he actually had been, was being paid money by F.F. F. Jones to report on what Wilkerson was doing. <laughs> At the same time, he was getting money from the Iowa Attorney General, who was getting reports about both Wilkerson and Jones from Mr. M., and he was called Mr. M because that's when he sent reports to the state attorney general. His code name was Mr. M. He 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 worked for the uh, Sioux City Journal newspaper and for the Des Moines Register. And so he had tipped uh, Jones off that uh, they were going to try to rob the store. And the marshal was there. The marshal fanned on a pistol. And uh, he, I think he did it himself. I, I don't think he wanted to shoot them. He could look through the glass and see that they were teenagers. And I think he pointed the gun at them and, and then faked a shot. But I don't know that. It, 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 he testified that the gun didn't work, didn't fire. And they fled. They were easy to find. Uh, the, the, dr- <laughs> the druggist in Nottoway had seen them and so on. Wilkerson found them in Atlantic by talking to the Atlantic chief of police and asking, you know, I want to get three guys that are, yeah, that can do a job for me. And uh, he said, I've picked up the names Brick, Boiler, and Squint, uh, Walker, and uh, Red Knave. What do you think? And he said, oh, they're, you know, they've already been in trouble all the time. I wouldn't deal with them. And Wilkerson's answer was, well, 
you can't uh, hire a choir boy to do a uh, serious job like this. And so he went ahead and worked with them. So they got back. They were all arrested. There was a trial. Well, actually, it was a preliminary hearing uh, to bind them over for trial. Uh, that was all done in Adams County because that's where the plot had taken place. But the Adams County uh, jury in, in the indictment hearing, uh, their their questions were, how much was this going to cost? And basically said, look, Montgomery County has paid thousands of dollars because of this murder. Let them worry about it. We're not going to prosecute this case. They'll find out what's right and wrong. And so they were let go, even though they were clearly guilty, but it was because of the feeling at the time. Well, the, the grand jury was called, and Wilkerson was no longer in control of it. And so that led to real problems for him because the witnesses that he thought he controlled and would testify as he expected them to didn't. Vina Tompkins, the woman from Marshalltown, they asked her, were you at this? Yes, I was at that thing. Yes, I saw these three men. Well, what were they doing? Well, I couldn't hear what they were talking about. But I thought they were talking about money, and I assumed they were talking about gambling debts. That's who I thought they were because I knew Weems was a uh, a, a real gambler. Well, was F.F. F. Jones there? Well, I can't I can't say that. There was a guy there with whiskers. He had a beard, but Jones doesn't look quite like him. So her testimony got a good deal weaker. Alice was the one that was the most, Alice was tough as nails. She had lots of problems in life, and she she was under real pressure in front of the grand jury, but she uh, tried to hold to her story, even though it got more and more tenuous. First, they couldn't find Ed McRae, who was supposed to be with her that night. And she also had been with a woman named Freeman, and... Uh, well, can she tell us about this? Well, she died that fall after this. So every she she went through an litany of everyone who might have some knowledge of this, and they were not available. Uh, Wilkerson told the grand jury that Ed McRae never existed. They just created him to conceal the fact that she was in a plum thicket on a Saturday night with a local uh, insurance salesman a man named Bryson, uh, and uh, he later got married. And this would threaten his marriage if his wife found out he had been cavorting with Alice Willard. Uh, but the biggest problem was that he said it was, it was Albert Jones in the dope sheet I referred to that was a summary of his testimony. Well, Albert had already clearly proven that he was not even in town on Saturday night before the murder. He and his wife had gone to Clorinda and were and stayed the weekend with her relatives. And therefore, Wilkerson said, well, it was F.F. F. Jones. It wasn't Albert. And the prosecuting attorneys thought that it was pretty obvious and perjury. And then they had made up the story and got the people wrong and put the one who couldn't be there. And so they redoctored it, and they forgot to change the dope sheet. And so that was argued back and forth. 
And finally, it led to a uh, convicted uh, Wilkerson of uh, contempt of court. He, um, he refused to answer their questions because he wanted to give an explanation, and they wanted a yes and no answer. Yes, was it F.F. F. Jones that was there or Albert? And he wouldn't tell. He wanted to explain why it happened. And he was uh, convicted and held overnight. And uh, he was convicted on a Saturday night, uh, late Saturday afternoon, like 5, 6 o'clock. And the sentence was 20, he was to spend a day in prison. And so he immediately, his lawyers argued that he should be released then at midnight on Saturday night because he he was imprisoned on Saturday and he was to spend the day of Saturday in prison. It was over on Saturday night. And the state argued no, he's got to be there until 5 o'clock Sunday night. He's got to spend 24 hours. That's what a day is. And they argued that for a while. I think he was finally held for 24 hours. <laughs> the witness, uh, Alice, held to, to her story, but it was very much weakened by these arguments that uh, came out uh, during the grand jury. And then uh, Ed Landers, he stuck to his story too, but uh, it was dramatically weakened because they, they brought his wife in and asked her, you know, were you walking, were you with him? Yes, I was walking down. It was, uh, was there a man in front of you? No, there was no one in front of us. And so it looks like Ed did either one of two things. Either he, it's possible that he got his dates mixed up. It wouldn't be impossible to for Albert to walk over and go into Joe Moore's house, but it might have it might have been done the week before. Uh, there were they were also working at the cafe that night and and so on. I rather think what happened was that he was a bit of a braggart, and somewhere along the line in the days after the murder, he started to talk about this kind of central role that he had, that he had seen Albert Jones going into the house. And pretty soon, that gets bandied about, and he gets called before a jury. Now he's under oath, and he made the mistake of not admitting it was poppycock and uh, he got himself in a position that he had already perjured himself. And now if he didn't stick to his story, he definitely would be charged, I suppose. But with his wife uh, refusing to collaborate him, they didn't follow up on that. They weren't interested in prosecuting him for perjury. But the jury was doubtful that, that he had seen this a case where Albert was walking into the house. The um, testimony by um, the uh, photographer, Warren Noel, he stuck by his testimony and they couldn't disprove it. Uh, they didn't really, the jury did not feel that it was very significant because they reasoned that it would not have been unusual for Jones and his supporters, three or four of them, to get together back there, and the election was going on, 
and they well very well could be talking about we've got to stop this thing or we won't get elected. We've got to figure out a way to win the election. Uh, some of the things that were said, he might have heard, but uh, they they didn't think they were particularly germane. And then they called uh, they called something like 160 witnesses before the grand jury. And uh, that's a treasure trove of information. I mean, that's when I first turned over my mind that I ought to write a book about this because, you know, it's like 4,000 4, pages of testimony. And it's very intimate testimony. I mean, they're, they're talking to people. <laughs> I laughed. I got, I was working in a motel in Red Oak County seat. And I had uh, one of the volumes of the, uh, of the grand jury and I was taking notes on them. And they were interviewing a woman named Abby. That's her last name, Mrs. Abby, uh, an older woman. And uh, she was hesitant to talk. And they, they said, and encouraged her and said, now, Mrs. Abby, don't, don't you worry about this. You tell us just exactly what you know, and nobody will ever know what you said, because this is secret testimony. So she testified. And <laughs> I'm sitting there writing it down. Uh, because the grand jury transcript was held for a number of years, probably 40 or 50 years, but somewhere in the mid-20th century, maybe in the 60s, they decided that they would uh, destroy it, partly because they were getting people like me coming around asking questions, and they didn't really like it. They'd like to suppress the information of the murder at that time, and consequently, they uh, thought the easiest thing to do is to put these in the junk, take them out, and burn them, and then we're done with it. Uh, and that would be legal. You know, they, there are limits as to when they can, how long they have to keep trial materials and things like that. Would have been a tragedy, but it would have been wouldn't have been illegal. And um, there was a lawyer, Jonathan Richards, whose father had tried one of the cases. Uh, Jonathan was a Harvard Law School graduate, and so was his father, educated man, intelligent man. And um, I was told by a person in the county courthouse that you should talk to Jonathan Richards about the records. He's got some of the records. And so I went over to his law office, introduced myself, and uh, said that, you know, I understood that he had some uh, records from the the trials, and I was wondering if I could get access to those. Well, he turned me down, but he said, come back. I want to think about it. And uh, I, I was at that time working on the case pretty hard, and so I was there in and out, uh, maybe every, certainly every month, maybe twice a month, come uh, leave as soon as I could, drive to Red Oak, uh, spend two or three days on the weekend, usually working with something or other, interviewing people, and whatever I could find. So I came back, and this, by this time he said, "Well, uh, here I'll I'll let you see this." And he had the the county, the coroner's inquest, which is a, something like a hundred page document. But he wouldn't let me take it. But he let me work in his office, and so I I uh, noted that, and then uh, I asked Ed more, and he said, "Yeah, I got more." And finally, he broke down and gave me. Volume One of the Grand Jury, the 1917 Grand Jury, and eventually he gave me all of them, 
and I took notes on, on all of them. They still were illegal to have, but um, the um, movie film people, uh, Villisca Living with a Mystery, the Rundles, they went to district court and may, had a lawyer and made the argument that this document, even though it's a grand jury document, is now in the public domain because there are um, at least four copies have been made and are in private hands. I had one of them. <laughs> it's in my basement. I can turn around and look at it right now. <laughs> uh, and the court uh, agreed with that. They said that you know the, these documents can no longer be claimed as private uh, since they, they, the court has lost control of them and uh, they are now being duplicated by private individuals and therefore they are public documents. And so that's where they, uh, but as I was saying, it was a marvelous uh, source because the people that were intimately involved, not so much with the murder itself, although they all all of the doctors appeared on it too, but they also had appeared earlier. But people who had gotten involved in the community split and the argument and the machinations that had been going on for five years, they were now being asked, well, did you say that? And they would say, well, I didn't really say that. This is what I said. And uh, person after person when they were interviewed by the grand jury, did not say what Wilkerson had said they would say in his dope sheet and personally. Everything shifted. The best example of that is Dan Stillian's testimony. Dan was a teenager at the time of the murder. By the time of the grand jury, five years later, he was homesteading in Montana. His dad was a strong Jones supporter, wealthy uh, merchant in town, druggist. And uh, Dan's older brother, Bruce, was active in the investigation as a helper, just pitched in and did things. And uh, Dan was uh, dating, actually the night of the murder, he was dating Fern Crow. And she lived north of the murder house, a few blocks, three or four blocks, and uh, on the edge of town. And he walked home with her after church, and they sat in the parlor, and uh, they flipped through a postcard album, which was the 1912 dating for high school students, apparently. And then about uh, approaching 11, uh, 10.30 or so, he left and testified to the jury that he walked down the street a block to the west of the murder house. He didn't walk by the murder house downtown, stopped at Van Camp's restaurant, met Frankie Robinson, another young kid who lived uh, up the street from him, and they ate some kind of a light lunch, and they went out. They were on the new Brick Street, only been in a year, out on 3rd Avenue, and they decided to have a foot race, and they raced for a block up the street. I No record was kept. I don't know what their times were, and I don't know who won the race. But then he went home. That's what he told the grand jury. But in reality, he had told a much different story to Fern Crow. He told her that he was um, 
He walked by the murder house, and he saw Albert and F.F. Jones peering from behind trees, apparently watching while the killers were at work. And so, you know, a sensational story. And uh, that was the story that the um, that Wilkerson was conveying. And uh, so the Favell, who was a tough attorney, Favell said, well, now, which of these stories is true? I mean, did you go by the house? No, I didn't go by the house. You, did, you didn't see them? No, I didn't see them. Did you tell Fern Crow that you did? No, I didn't tell her that. Okay. Fern Crow is sitting in the next room. We bring her in. Will she tell you then? What will she say? I said, I don't know. He said, bring her in. And so Fern comes in, and did he tell you that he went by the murder house? Yes. Did he tell you that he was watching when the murder was being committed? Yes, he told me that. Okay, thank you. And now he said, you you tell this story to Forms Petty, another girl that he dated about that time. And uh, n- no, I didn't. And then went through that ritual again. And then the third one was Goldie Mitchell. So these three women, they were grown now. They'd been high schoolers at the time. They all testified that Dan had told them the story that Wilkerson was telling. He then denied it in front of the jury. He said, no, I, I didn't do it. He said, it was a lie. He tried to avoid it, saying it was a lie, but he finally admitted under pressure, yes, I, I just made it up. And uh, that's what happened over and over again. That was the most blatant case. But Wilkerson's case fell apart, and so they returned uh, no true bill. Jones was not indicted. Mansfield was not indicted. And the grand jury went on then to indict Kelly. Back in a moment. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. 
Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. It's interesting that a lot of what Wilkerson did was to formulate theories before he had the evidence to prove those theories, right? (laughs) Yes, very much so. (laughs) Right. As an example, two of the mysteries in the case, what happened to the bloody clothes, and why weren't any incriminating fingerprints found? Yeah. Yeah. He needed to provide an answer to those mysteries so he could peddle Blackie Mansfield as... Well, his, his very first theory... Which he, it it uh, came in a um, he didn't know Blackie Mansfield yet, but it came in a report to the Iowa Attorney General after he'd been hired in fourteen, was that the killer had uh, worn gloves, so there was no there were no fingerprints, but that's all he wore. He had killed in the nude because he was a cocaine addict, according to uh, Wilkerson. And in the the cocaine superstitions, he didn't want to get blood on his clothes, but he also felt that being uh, naked would, uh, I don't know uh, (laughs) how he related this, but he did argue that Wilkerson had worn a pair of gloves and nothing else when uh, (laughs) Mansfield had, when he did the killing. Is that what you're referring to? Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of just saying, we can't locate the clothes, I don't have an explanation for where the clothes went. Uh, he had well, to... Well, yeah, the, the kids' clothes had been removed, and most of those were hanging over chairs uh, or were kind of put up for the night. And Joe's pants were hanging on the bedpost, uh, things like that. But the uh, they were in night clothes, Sorry, I, I meant the killer's bloody shirt. Uh, yeah, the, the killer's clothes. clothes, according to Wilkerson, he had uh, stripped them off so they wouldn't get bloody. But it also, uh, I, there was some, I, I, memory fails me, there was some uh, allusion to the mirror and being naked rather than clothed, but I uh, can't remember that. Uh, I haven't read that report for a long time. I don't even know if I can find it. I hope I could. Anyway. Uh, One more thing I wanted to ask about Wilkerson. He's got to be one of the most despicable 
uh, <laughs> law enforcement figures I've ever read or heard about, you know, or covered on this show in over 200 episodes. <laughs> um, a big, malicious bully who is in it for the money and his reputation, um, not for yes, true justice. Yes, I, I think he... Uh, he had a, a a vision of maybe parling it into political, political, particularly political gain, because he did run for uh, county attorney in Montgomery County after all this was over, after Kelly had been tried and uh, and so on, and he had great support in Montgomery County. He would have been elected, except he wasn't admitted to the Iowa bar, and you have to be a lawyer in Iowa to be a county attorney. So he petitioned the Iowa Supreme Court, this is in 18, to uh, be admitted to the Iowa bar. He, he had some kind of, of lawyer credential from Texas. It's a little vague as to what it was, but he, he, he claimed to be a Texas lawyer. Uh, well, Havner, who is his sworn enemy now, opposed that entirely. He took the 31, the 31 items that Jones had collected in that dossier that uh, Wilkerson had tried to steal and uh, used that, but it didn't come up for decision. It didn't get to the courts because the Supreme Court collected it and it was in process, but uh, Wilkerson was arrested in Ottumwa, Iowa, in uh, the uh, spring of 1918, where he was arrested for adultery. He came on the train with May Knoll. May was Warren Knowles. We've heard of him, uh, his wife, and they had a baby daughter, and uh, Warren had committed suicide in the fall. He, after he had testified in the, the first trials, he then committed suicide. So she was now a widow. Wilkerson claimed to be advising her on some investments because she had gotten substantial insurance money from Warren. And they came on the same train to a, in a tumble and went to a hotel. And they, they rented two rooms, one for May and the, and the infant, and one for Wilkerson. They pretty obviously were being followed by um, Iowa investigators because one of them claimed to have been in the hotel lobby when they came in and hid, I don't know if he hid behind a potted palm or what, but he uh, hid while they registered, and then they got two more state agents that were just happened to be in Otomo that night. And they all, along with the hotel clerk, trooped up to the second or third floor where the rooms were, and they got in the room across the hall. And then they pushed a chest of drawers up against the door and clambered up and were peering through the transom. And pretty soon, Wilkerson came out in a nightshirt and went in the room, and uh, the three state detectives, they crouched outside the door, waiting until they heard the squeak of bed springs, and they, uh, as they put it, uh, said it sounded like someone was having intercourse, and so they 
opened the door, and the, the two were in bed, and uh, they uh, arrested them for a, a conspiracy to commit adultery. <laughs> Wilkerson, <laughs> Wilkerson is never at a loss. I mean, he he was he fell on his feet. He really pretty good at this. He immediately the the young child who was in a crib like bed of uh, in the same room asleep. She uh, was uh, fighting off measles. She had just had measles and was sick. And he said that uh, he had come in the room and was laying quietly on the bed uh, while they were trying to see if the youngster was going to stay asleep or going to be restless, and then he would help out in some way. And so there, there was no uh, uh, intercourse or any kind of sexual contact at all. And uh, anyway, that all went to trial. And the the trial, <laughs> the jury uh, petitioned the judge. They needed more information. And their question was, can we convict uh, Wilkerson without convicting Noel, the woman? <laughs> they were noble. They didn't want to convict her of such a heinous crime. Right. And so uh, uh, the judge wrote, sent back a note saying, well, he, he, it was hard for him to conceive how you could convict one for adultery without at least involving the other. <laughs> and so they, they had a uh, hung jury and that died out. Wilkerson left the state. I mean, that was his last gasp, but he was trying to be a political official based on his uh, efforts. And Oscar Winston tells a story that, uh, Oscar's dead now, but he, he told the story of, uh, he was in Kansas City. He didn't give me a date, it, probably in the 20s or early 30s. And he, um, he was walking down the street and all of a sudden, hey, Oscar, and he turned around and here was Wilkerson. And Wilker, and they chatted out on the street a moment and Wilkerson said, hey, my apartment's just across, just down the street. Uh, Come on up, and uh, uh, we'll have a drink. And so they did. And it was a nice apartment, and uh, Oscar just made a casual comment. Well, you've got a nice apartment here, uh, Jim. And uh, Wilkerson said, well, you can thank the citizens of Montgomery County for 60000 of it. Wow. Implying that he had made uh, this uh, Montgomery County Protective Association that he formed, uh, raised money. Uh, there was some accounting, but it's, it's a little in, imprecise as to what happened to all that money. And I'm sure Wilkerson got a share, if not the bulk of it, uh, and so on. Uh, he, he was quite unethical at that time. He uh, later, uh, he joined a group in Kansas City called Friends of Democracy. And this was a harebrained scheme by a former New England uh, pastor who uh, uh, he was going to go to Berlin in the lead up to World War II and preach in Berlin on the street corners and persuade Hitler to change his ways, kind of like uh, Ford's peace ship in World War I. But the upshot of that obviously was that uh, it... Uh, 
was an absurd idea. It was titled Friends of Democracy because they believed that the fascist movements in the 1930s of Townsend and uh, uh, Father Coughlin and some of those groups were threatening the security of democracy. And this was a group that was trying to, to defend anybody uh, who was defending democracy and fight against anyone who was being. And Wilkerson was an officer in that group, which seemed to me like a strange place for Wilkerson to be, but he was now old and he, um, he died in 44, I believe. Uh, he was uh, suffering from uh, Alzheimer's pretty severely when he died. He's buried outside of Kansas City in a cemetery there. Again, I've been speaking to Ed Epperly. He wrote the book on the Velisca Axe Murders, Fiend Incarnate, Velisca Axe Murders of 1912. Back for part three next week. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.